0: It is a terrific thing to be together as a body of Christ, and uh, as, as uh, Pastor Keith mentioned, we do continue to pray for God's comforting hand, uh, uh, with Regina and Evelyn, and uh, thank God for His goodness to us, and thankful as well um, that the teens can go uh, to camp this afternoon. I, I heard, so it's at noon, they have to meet at, at another church, and I had heard from somebody, eh, about 11.30, they were going to head out and be really prepared, and I promise you, I'll be done before you need to go, teens. I promise. I promise. And let me pray here just quickly um, for the teens. I, I want them to have fun, and I want them to do all the lake stuff, and I want them to have all these enjoyable memories, but I want them to love Jesus. I want them to see Him and love Him and know Him in a deeper way. So let's pray to that end. Lord, Thank you for the comfort that you give. And we continue to pray for comfort for Regina, Evelyn, and the family. Thank you for those verses that remind us, why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. And may each and every person in here that trusts you as Savior, hope in God and the really, really hard things in this life. And Lord, we pray for our teens and pray that they would have fun and enjoy it, meet new friends. But centrally, Lord, that they would come back and say, I have an understanding of Christ in a deeper, fuller way. I love him and I want to follow him all the days of my life. May that be true, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you are there in Hebrews uh, chapter 11 um, just stay there, but if you want to think of a verse, Luke has this verse, and Mark has this verse as well, mark 8:34 "If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me." The phrase "deny self" was a central part of Christianity for a good 1900 years, but has really fallen off the map in years in the last century or so. I have a quote here that I think will be startling to most of us, maybe offensive to some. This is from Jeremiah Burroughs, born in 1599, uh, died in 1647. I know that because we would be the same age if he died when he was 47. Nonconformist pastor in England, has the, the book, among others, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, and he has this quote about selflessness see what you think of this see what this how this speaks to our modern world he says this lord i am nothing lord i deserve nothing lord i can do nothing i can receive nothing can make use of nothing i am worse than nothing and if i come to nothing and perish i will be no loss at all and therefore Is it such a great thing for me to be cut short here? That's not a quote that we would typically use in 2023, certainly not in the Western world. But I think another way to say it would be to agree with John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. Over the past decades, selflessness, self-denial has increasingly fallen out of our vocabulary and our practice. Some of that might be for good reason, Some have denied self by isolating from community, maybe even Christian community. I'm going to live by myself or in a monastery or a convent or elsewhere, maybe just with my family, and I'm not going to interact with anyone. Not healthy and not right. Or I'm not going to eat anything tasty or enjoy anything good from the earth or have any pleasure in life. Certainly, again, not what God prescribes. But deep down, I think most of us Struggle at some level with being self focused, with wanting self on the throne, maybe annoyed by others' self absorption while not recognizing our own. And culturally, even Christian culturally, denying self, really denying self, feels pretty foreign. And I will say, oh, you know, we've all been changing that diaper or replacing the, roll, the toilet paper roll in the bathroom, or doing laundry, and we've thought to ourselves, you know who keeps this family going? This guy right here. We've all thought that at some level at different times, right? But how about we ratchet that up a notch? How about truly denying? Like this marriage is so hard, but I'm not giving up. Or this person treats me so poorly, but I refuse to do the same back to them. Or I would really like you fill in the blank, but is this really beneficial for the kingdom? Maybe this isn't something that I need to have in my life. It's something I might really, really want, but I'm going to weigh how much am I putting myself at the forefront when I purchase this? Is there a bigger picture, bigger purpose to life than this? Or maybe we ramp it up a little bit. If I acknowledge God, if I follow God, I could lose everything or I could be killed, which is really what Moses is facing in our sermon today. So the question for every person in here, what thought do I put into denying myself? We kind of have three big picture pillars holding up this question and holding up why it ought to be. And there will be the the points of the message today. The first one being the worth of Almighty God. The second one being the reward of his son, Jesus Christ. And the third one that we're pushed with in the text today is faith in the unseen. We like to talk about faith. We hear about faith every week. And humanly, we like to have faith in stuff that I can touch and see and feel and know in a way that's tactile. And Moses and the writer of Hebrews is pushing us faith in the unseen. So first of all, the worth of God, one of the big picture pillars holding up the importance of denying self. So we're there in Hebrews chapter 11, and I'll read verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So what's going on with that? Well, we could turn to Exodus one and two. We could turn to um, Acts chapter seven and see Stephen's explanation in his sermon right before being killed of, of the story of Moses. And he has Abraham in there and has some other things as well, but a lot of Moses is in that. And rather than going through all that, just as a reminder for some of us, Pharaoh has this edict of, hey, you slaves that are living among us. And, the, and Egypt at the time was ruling and Israel was there. The Jewish people were there in Egypt for about 1,500 years roughly before the time of Christ at that time, about 500 years before the time of David. That kind of gives us an idea. And the Israelites had been growing and growing and growing and growing. And the Egyptians were getting nervous and saying, hey, we, these, these are gonna get out of control. There's gonna be too many of them. What should we do? We're gonna make a rule kill all the boys and let the girls live. We know how the the two midwives that are mentioned in Exodus chapter one were honorable and they followed God and they did not do what Pharaoh had commanded them to do. But the edict went out again. Hey, this is what's going to happen. All the boys after they're born are going to get thrown into the Nile and you're going to have to do it yourself, Israel, and the girls can live. It's a story that was told. Then we know that Moses' mother and father didn't throw him into the Nile. They kept him for three months. Surely by that time, the cries are being heard by neighbors. Other people know what's going on. They're going to get caught. They put him in the Nile. They built him a a little little boat, a miniature little boat to take out into the river. His sister Miriam is watching. They float that boat. It goes right by Pharaoh's daughter and her attendants. They say, what have we found here? We're going to name him Moses, because we drew him out of the water. We want to keep him. What did he look like? We really don't know. Miriam pipes up the little girl, the older sister, and says, hey, need anybody to feed that new little baby you have there? Because my mom could. Pharaoh's daughter sends Moses back with uh, Miriam. Says he's raised and nursed and taken care of by the mother in their own house, it appears. How much care or influence... Pharaoh's daughter had during that time, we don't know. At what age was he sent then back to live with Pharaoh's daughter, we don't know. But weaning often happened later then. Was he four years old, three years old, six years old, we really don't know. At some point he's raised in Pharaoh's household as a political and family member of Pharaoh's household. And at a later date, maybe around the age of 40, he kills an Egyptian. Egyptian. We could go more into the story there and probably talk about it a little bit more. He kills an Egyptian that's abusing some of his countrymen, Israel. And what did he know of his countrymen? I don't know. How much interaction did he have with his biological family for for that other part of his life up to age 40? We really don't know. We know that the next day after killing this Egyptian and burying him in the sand, he goes back out there and two Israelites are fighting. He says, hey, knock it off, you two. And one of them's the aggressor in this, and he stops him, and that guy mouths at him and says, what, are you going to kill us too, like he killed the Egyptian? Moses is afraid, and he says, I'm going to get killed by Pharaoh. Probably a Pharaoh or two down the line from the, the original one that he was, when he was probably born. Who it was, we really do not know. There's speculation, but we do not know. And he takes off, and he runs, and he goes to Midian. And... and um. Stephen, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, gives a lot of the same information, really emphasizes the beauty and amazing skill set that Moses has. Um, There's a quote in there of the mighty in words and in deeds, which kind of pushes us a little bit when Moses later is saying, when he's closer to 80 years old, I don't want to be the one that goes back to Egypt. I'm not a good enough talker. Can somebody else do it? Can my younger brother do it? But Stephen tells us he's mighty in words and mighty in deeds certainly an emphasis on Moses as God's appointed. And in these opening verses, really, it's the faith of Amram and Jochebed, Moses' father and mother. And it's interesting that it uses the term beautiful there. Some of your translations might say fine. Um, There might be some other ones as well, but that term beautiful is there. Josephus and some other writers have gone into all kinds of writing, and they never met Moses, but maybe passed down. You know, Moses was the best-looking baby that the world had ever seen. Moses was the best-looking young man the world had ever seen. He was so smart. He was so this and this and this. It's, it's really all speculation. We really don't know on any of that. Um, I, would be, I would caution us on this idea of beautiful, of a, oh, wow, husband. Oh, wow, wife. We had such a cute baby. Let's not kill him. Let's keep him around because he's super cute. That's that's really not the idea that God is giving us here. It's really an idea of God has a purpose for him and God has reason for him. And even right along with that would be his parents were going to trust in God and not go along with the government and what they had said. Parents were not afraid to go against Exodus one twenty two. every sin cast into the Nile while every daughter May live. Um, we might even argue that most assuredly they were afraid at some level, but they had fear of God, reliance on God, desiring to obey God that was oh so much greater than being concerned about, over their murdering government. And if you will, if you could just push yourself in your thinking for just a little bit, because we have a tendency of saying, hey, 3,500 years ago, there were some people that were in an awful position. But if you put that into a modern context, this would be Abby Sorrells and Brittany Cameron. um, This would be Shannon Yates. I think those are the only three that are pregnant in our church right now. And you know you're going to have a baby and you're crying every single day because you're living at a time where you're going to be told, when this baby is born, if it's a boy, it's dead. And so when you see someone in this church now, and they're going to have a baby, and you say, I am so excited for you. You're going to have a baby. Were they doing that in 1445 BC at this time? Absolutely not. You would see someone pregnant, and you would cry for them. And you wouldn't even bring it up to them, would you? Oh, I see. How far along are you? Baby bump, all those things. You would see them and weep. And you would be going to, the, let's say, the community well. And you'd be seeing your pregnant friend going to the well and going to the well every day, every day. And you couldn't even bring it up. And then you don't see them for a day or two or three. And someone tells you, oh, they, they've given birth, but we didn't hear if it was a boy or a girl. And they come to the well on day seven or day 10 or whatever, and they have no baby with them. And you would have said at that time, oh, they had a boy. The boy was fed to the crocodiles in the Nile. Or they had a girl, and you're joyfully, you have a little girl, and you're not going to put your little girl in the Nile. But you can't be happy for your pregnant friend that just had a baby, because she had a little boy. And so if we put ourselves in the context of this, and you say, oh, there's no way out. And there was really no way out save for obeying God. And are they going to be killed for obeying God? And what's going to happen? And they wouldn't know. Acts chapter seven, Stephen says that Moses was lovely or beautiful in the sight of God, that God had a plan for him. So I guess I'd push us to some degree. When you hear a horrific story like this in scripture, put yourselves in their shoes. What what did God do? How did God provide because we have such a tendency of saying, oh, for them, they should have done this, but how about for me and for you And we are put in circumstances? By God's grace, we have not been put in that place right now, but God's people have at different times. What will we do? Now, some people might say, I'm not gonna have children because the world is so bad. They might say, I'm not going to have children because I live for entertaining myself. Now, you're not required husband and wife, to have children. But I guess I would ask this, how small is your God? And does the culture raise your kids? Oh, it's too evil of a culture to have children. So the culture raises your kids? God's people throughout history have said the culture might be horrific, or it might, by common grace, be in times of joyously better. But God's given me the mandate to raise my kids through the Holy Spirit's enabling power. And will we continue to do that instead of fear trusting God? And might God use your kids for big redeeming things in the culture? We could read all of Hebrews chapter 11, right? And see by faith Abraham and by faith Gideon and Barak and we could go on and on and on that God chose to use individuals at different times to do redeeming things in the culture and might he not be planning that for your children as well. And even if they don't do any big things in the culture, how about being used for God's good purposes? Children are a gift from God, whether that's your biological children, adoptive foster care, helping out grandparents, whatever it might be, children are a gift from God. And that pushes us. We keep going. So they're not afraid of the king's edict, Verses 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, this is kind of switching over to him. Really, it's been his parents switching over to him. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of of sin. The spotlight shifts to Moses. And what choice does he have here? Comfort and privilege in Egypt be the wealthiest, most advanced scientifically, money and other things at that time, should be evidenced by faithlessness, or choice would be mistreatment and suffering with the people of Israel, representing clearly faithfulness. So is it wrong to have privilege, comfort, and wealth? So it is not. We can think so many places in Scripture where God used people, where God blessed people with financial means, even great financial means, and God honored them in that and enabled them with that, and they were able to do good things with that. I mean, we could look at Job and Abraham and David and Joseph of Arimathea and the women that helped Jesus and the women that helped the apostle Paul, and lists go on and on and on. We also need to be cautious of Places like James chapter five, where woe to you, rich. Well, what were some of the woes? What was the reason for that? In James chapter five, one of the biggest things is they're storing up for themselves and taking advantage of their workers. It says basically, you know, the the blood or the cries of your workers is crying out to me. I'm hearing it. So this is someone that becomes wealthy by stepping on the faces and backs and shoulders of other people and smooshing them into the ground. Clearly warned against that in scripture. In Mark 10, the verse, it's not easy for rich to enter the kingdom. And our temptation there is to say, oh, the rich, so that's, uh, that's these two people or those six people or those 22 people, but uh, worldwide, the rich would be virtually every person in this room. Someone that is not concerned about what they're going to eat on their next meal, has housing, has clothing. By definition, that would be the rich, which would be us. And you could not have both in that Egyptian culture. You could be in the United States today. You could be a Christian and be the president. Uh, You might not get voted in, but you could do that. Uh, In the Egyptian culture, there's no chance for that. Uh, Culturally, completely different from that. In their religion, and what they did, in everything, you could not be a follower of God and be a leader of Egypt. Certainly not, in addition to that, what God had planned for his people. So we need to think more like modern Muslim cultures in in much of the world, where we have heard from the pulpit here by someone speaking when they trusted Christ as savior and were told by their dad or they heard from their mom that their dad had said, I'm gonna kill you when I can find you. And that's when he started to run maybe some norms and culture. Or Brian House shared with the teens this morning um, from some of his time in Southeast Asia, the other side of the world, the I am a follower of Christ now, and now I have zero with my family. My family will have nothing to do with me and how important then church family became to those believers, especially those ones that Brian was interacting with there. We know Matthew 19 says, And everyone who has left houses or brother or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So instead of comfort and privilege in Egypt, Moses chose mistreatment and suffering with Israel. And why would he do that? Why would he make that choice? He was about 40 years old when we see the results of him making that choice. Why would he do that? Well, certainly he understood God's promises. God had made some promises to Abraham in Genesis 15, about 650 years before the time of Moses. And one of God's promises or some of God's promises to Abraham would be, Hey, Abraham, you're going to have descendants like the stars. Abraham's out there at night and we're so used to light pollution and all these lights everywhere that you don't see the stars as well. But you get out in the middle of nowhere and look up at the stars and how brightly they glow. And Abraham's doing that and God says, see those stars up there? You're gonna have descendants more numerous than that. And hey, Abraham, your descendants, here's another promise. They're gonna be sojourners in another land for 400 years, but I, God, am going to bring you out and you're gonna plunder that country as well. The land of Canaan and the the breadth and the width is given. The land of Canaan will be yours. So just as to help our thinking, as we're thinking through being selfless, about being others focused, a huge pillar in that is seeing the worth of Almighty God. And Moses starts us with, with that thinking right here. The second point seeing the reward of Jesus. Look at with me at verse 26. Moses considered the reproach of Christ, Christ being another word for the promised Messiah. So Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, the richest country in the world at that time, for he was looking to the reward. What does the Messiah have to do with Moses' rejection of Egypt. Well, I, I, we, we need to think of a few things here. One, we if we go back mentally just to these promises that God made to Abraham, I would say this, that even while Abraham was living in the promised land, he's living in the land of Canaan, and, and after him, so you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even while living in the promised land, they were looking for another land. The Abrahamic covenant wasn't centrally about the here and now. There was some future to it. We're already there in Hebrews. So, Hebrews 11, um, look at verse 10. So, this is talking about Abraham, 650 like years before the time of Moses. But there's this Abrahamic covenant. And what does it say in verse 10? For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So, by faith, he had gone to the land of promise. But there's a little bit of a push here of, that's not, they hadn't gotten it all yet. There's some, there's some future to that. Uh, turn with me to verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 11. But as it is, so we've got even descendants of Abraham. People are living in the land of Canaan. They're receiving the promises. They're, they're fruitful. There's more and more Israelites being born. And hey, these descendants like the stars, look at what God is doing. Verse 16, but as it is, They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So they're living in Canaan, but something more is there. Something more is being looked to. Something more is needed. And we get a little bit of an idea, actually a pretty direct idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, for the promises, for all the promises of God, find their yes in him. Talking about who? talking about Jesus Christ. So all these promises of God in history, here's a promise and a promise and a promise, and they find their yes, they find their answer in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 11 says, Moses was even looking to that. Did he understand it all? Certainly he did not. Did he understand all the details of it? Certainly he did not. But he was looking to Christ even then. Deuteronomy 18, 18, we are they're told, hey, there's gonna be a prophet that is coming, and he's gonna be a prophet that's gonna look like this and do this and do this. He's gonna be a prophet like Moses, only it's gonna be more than Moses. It's Jesus Christ. We could look at Hosea chapter 11. And Hosea 11 and Matthew 2 have some, some overlap here. So I think they might be on the screen behind me. But Hosea chapter 11, verse one says that, says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So the Lord reached down and said, Israel is living as slaves in Egypt, and I'm gonna bring them out. I'm gonna bring them out of Egypt. I'm gonna bring them to the promised land. They're my son. And then we go to Matthew chapter two, and it's talking about this is to fulfill, fulfill um, what has been prophesied. And then it talks about you know, Jesus' birth, Jesus' birth, Jesus' birth. And it says this, out of Egypt, I called my son. What is is it saying right there? Just as the Lord had pulled Israel out of Egypt, we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know that the family fled to Egypt and he pulled them out. And we've got some overlap here. We've got this pre-picture happening in the Old Testament. And we've got the fulfillment of it happening in Matthew chapter 2. Christ, Christ, Christ over and over again. And we know that this abuse that... Moses endured prefigures the abuse that our Redeemer Jesus would receive as well. If you want to turn with me, I think this would be a a helpful way to think through denial and Christ and how it fits with the text here today. So turn with me to Mark, or you can just listen along, but turn with me to Mark chapter 8 if you have your Bibles there. I think this will will help us as we think through the denying of self that Moses did and the denial of self that um, Christ expects of us. And sometimes even our, I don't think I need to deny myself in this or this or this because I know what's best or I know what what should happen. And I think uh, Mark chapter 8 pushes us with that a little bit. So there's just been a discussion in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And uh, the people told him, they responded, hey, some people think you're John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And then we're there in verse 29, and Jesus asked him, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and answered well. Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. You're the promised Messiah that that we've been looking for. You're the promised one that that for, for generations and for centuries we've been looking for. You are the one. And Jesus charged them not to tell anyone about it. It was not yet time. So Peter has this terrific answer, but he has his own agenda and what this Messiah should look like. We go on to verse 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must, oh, have some really horrible things. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the the central people within Judaism. And and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And it says, how did Jesus teach? He taught it plainly. He said this plainly. And what's Peter's response then? Earlier, it said, you're the Messiah, you're the promised one. And Jesus said, yes, I I am, and this is what it's going to look like. And Peter said, that's not what I'm thinking. That's not what I expect. That's not what I desire. This is what you say is not what it's going to be. What I say, this is what it ought to be. Peter pulls him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. When what we think or our agenda or our idea of this is what Christianity should look like or this is what Jesus should do and this is how things ought to be, get in the way of what almighty God has planned in sending his son Christ, we're truly doing the work Satan. Peter is saying, This is how I want it to be. And Jesus says, You know what self denial is? It's doing what I want, what I expect, and what I have truly come to do. He says, Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he starts to preach. And he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes. In the glory of his father with the angels. I have a, a quote or two here. This is this is from John Bloom, a desiring God article that I appreciated. And I'll just read this quote to you. It says, So Jesus was now preparing them for the cross, his first and foremost, then theirs, and the multimillennial mission to call out Israel from all peoples into his kingdom. Jesus was teaching them to intentionally move towards death. Physical death, yes. All present that day would die, many as martyrs. But all his followers would have to die to themselves, die to their desire for self-glory, die to the desire for worldly respect and the fear of man, die to the desire for an easy life, die to the desire for earthly wealth and a thousand other deaths. Finally, they must die to their desire to save their earthly lives. That's what he was saying to Peter. And then it goes on, in, in the article, self-denial, then, is an intentional disowning of the self or stepping away from a relationship with the self as primary. Who is our primary allegiance to? Him or me? A call to bear one's cross as part of following Jesus, then, is a call to be submitted to the Christ as a condemned criminal was in his death. Therefore, when Jesus calls for self denial and cross bearing, he's claiming authority. Following Christ means disowning the self and giving allegiance to him instead. And it means giving him allegiance down to the very depths of our being. What does it mean to deny oneself and take up a cross daily? It's to live in light of the cross saying, He went to death as a criminal and I'm walking along with him. It's not, well, take up your cross. I got something hard in my life. I'm just bearing my cross of this, that, or whatever. Saying I'm going to live under the shadow of what he has done as my example, as a representative. And he is the only one who can take my sin upon himself. I'm going to live with that cross foremost in my mind daily. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, a book that probably many, many, many of us have read and own. He has a chapter on selfishness. And I think some of the things in there would be worth re- rereading if you have some time this afternoon. But he pushes four things in, in, one of, in that one chapter. He says, oh, we have such temptations, Christian, is generally who he's writing to there, in these areas. He says, in our interests. He says, as a grandfather... I want to tell people about my grandkids. But it's a killer when somebody else is going to drone on and on about theirs. But we need to be respectful and listen and enjoy and try and think of the other person. Because we need to let each of you look not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he says interest. He says time. So how many times have we as Christians, we might not say it, but we think it. My time is more valuable than your time, whether it's in discussing something with someone or helping someone. Time is one thing that everybody has the same of, and we have such a temptation to say, my time is so valuable, I don't think yours is. What can we give of our time? Our money is a third thing. Every dollar we receive is from Almighty God, and how are we best using it to the glory of God? for the good of the church, for the good of each other, for the life of the world? How about considering others? He gives a really good example in there of, I just say what I think. People get offended sometimes, but that's their problem because I'm being me. I'm being true to myself. How many times have we done that with people? I just say what I think. And are we being cruel and self-centered and self-focused when we do so? And we're reminded that Jesus is our example. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, though he was rich for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Some cautions we have here with self-denial. I'd reference some in the introduction, but just a few things that as, as people, as followers of Christ, we need to be aware of. No monasteries. No separating ourselves or isolating ourselves in some extreme way. And oftentimes in our kind of culture, we're not so concerned about that. But maybe even as a family, we can say, hey, you know, this family is sinful and that family is sinful and we're just going to be by ourselves and stay to ourselves because nobody else can live up to our standards. That is not the picture or pattern we're given in Scripture. We need each other. Another caution, no extreme asceticism, no separating ourselves um, or withdrawing from good gifts from God, so often that becomes a, this is how God's going to like me more. Now, individually, we talked about this in an ethics class months back, different things. There's going different things that different people are going to do. Do not be offended if someone is more conservative in area A, B, or C than you are. And if it's when, within biblical areas of freedom, Also, don't be offended if someone is is having more freedom than than you choose to do for yourself or for your family. That's freedom in Christ. And we can rejoice with that. But throughout Christian history, people have failed and failed badly by saying, I'm going to do less or I'm going to do more because God will like me more or I will earn more or I will deserve more. And over and over in Scripture, we're reminded um, selflessness is not connected to earning anything with God. If you wanna do some fun historical reading, some interesting historical reading, do some reading on that. Two more cautions, careful parents, extreme self-denial and entitled kids. It happens. Um, I've seen multiple times in my lifetime of, oftentimes it is a super, super selfless mom who does everything for her kids. And her kids are really hard to be around as adults because they're used to someone doing something for them them all the time. So you really self-denial kind of parents, if you're out here, be careful with that. Train your kids to do some things on their own. Your kid's future spouse is going to thank you. Because if you're the mommy that does everything for your little kid, and your little kid's 17, they're going to get married someday. And I will tell you, I've counseled multiple times of people that are like, My husband or my wife expects this, 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 and this because their mommy did this, 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 and this. And I can't do all that, and I don't even know if it's healthy for them. So be careful in your self-denial. Be within biblical boundaries, okay? And just watch yourself in that. Some people naturally are are far this way. Some people are naturally far this way. But some cautions for us. And the last one is self-denial. A caution here. Self-denial is not receiving, taking abuse, or degrading words from a spouse or other people. Um, If you're not sure about that, maybe you have a circumstance like this, I would encourage you to talk with with one of your pastors or a godly friend, not five or 10 godly friends, but talk with someone. If you're in a situation like this, we would love to get involved and to help you and to help the other person. So self-denial, worth of God Reward of Jesus Christ. And third, faith in the unseen. 27 and 28. For by faith, Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Kind of using that as a name for God. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. Like two words that don't go together. He was seeing, he was understanding, he was knowing, Almighty God that I cannot see, this is the one, first time he goes and leaves and goes to Midian, there's a burning bush. And Moses approaches the burning bush and says, what is going on right here? There's a bush that's burning and it's not being consumed. And God speaks to him out of the bush and he says, Moses, take off your sandals for this is holy ground. And he gives him direction and he gives him guidance. And Moses was able to see that which we cannot see. Verse 28, by faith, he kept the Passover. Giving us an example here. He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. If you were just reading or talking and you heard someone say, hey, so-and-so is the destroyer of the firstborn, almost every one of us would think, that must be talking about Satan. Satan who lies and cheats and goes about as a, ro- as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Who is he who the destroyer of the firstborn? Who is that? That is Almighty God. A term that we do not normally think of connected to Almighty God. Connected with the Passover. And we know that in the Passover, blood is putting on the doorpost here, and putting on the doorpost here, and putting on the lintel here. And if they did that in faith... The Israelites, before leaving Egypt, what does it say that God did? This destroyer of the firstborn, he passed over. But those that did not do that, did not obey, those that were in Egypt and didn't follow God at all, the firstborn died. And it says the firstborn of the people and the firstborn of the livestock. And there wasn't a house in Egypt where people weren't dead and there was screaming and yelling and gnashing of teeth, and they gave money and flocks to Israel and said, get out of here, we don't want to see you again. Moses, in faith, instructed both for himself and his own family and the people of Israel to follow God. And we know that Moses, as well, had feet of clay. He failed, he sinned. He was not allowed to go into the promised land. Here's the leader of Israel, and God did not permit him to go into the land because he didn't obey correctly. He speak to the rock. He smacks the rock. God doesn't let him into the land. We also know his failures of, we referenced earlier, I can't do this. I can't talk this well. I can't do this task when he's in Midian. He's married. He has his two sons. God says, I want you to go back and you're going to set my people free. You're going to let them go. He's about 80 years at the time. And Moses says, I I can't do this. I'm not a good enough talker. I I, I don't have the ability to go back there. Was he concerned about his own death? Was he concerned about his wife and sons? We we don't know. But he says, I can't do this. I can't do this. And God says, I will do this and I'm choosing to use you. And Moses says, "I, I can't do this. Can we, can we, Oh, here we've got Aaron, my younger brother. He can, he can do this. And just as a side note here, I want to remind us, for many of us, we can really feel that. I can really feel the failure that Moses had of saying, I'm not good enough for this. I'm, the, the task that God has given is too much. Even talking with a, a believer yesterday, and they felt the same way. I think there's some health in saying, I can't do this. I don't have the skills. I don't have the ability. But here's where there's real health. I trust in the one that can do it. I trust in the one who's enabling me. I trust in the one who's good and will enable me to serve him and to follow him and to rely on him like crazy. And I would encourage you, whatever the challenging circumstances that you have in your life as a follower of God, I hope you don't feel, I'm up to the task. I'm really good at this. Wow, what skills? I hope you don't have that. Because you know what we need? We need this brokenness. I can't do it, but my God can. Moses demonstrated some failure, some weakness, and we can feel it and come right alongside him. And the question, whose anger do we fear more? The world's governing authorities or our Lord? You know, Pharaoh's daughter adopts him. Surely they would have known he is not Egyptian. In what ways did he fall short of family expectations or whatever? Again, who was a Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus? Who was a Pharaoh at the, at, the, at the time of his first running off to Midian? We really don't know. Certainly it was at some level a relative. Could have been an uncle, a stepbrother. We, we really don't know at all. But the, I'm going to kill you is a terrifying thing that most of us have not had. Some of us probably have, but most of us have not. No, I have never heard from the government that I'm going to be killed and they're looking for me, but I can imagine that would be a terrifying thing. And who does Moses fear more, God or the government that's in charge at that time? Also, what did Moses know of God as a young man? I think that's kind of a, a one that we, we don't know the answer for. What does that look like? Well, we know we certainly knew nothing from Pharaoh's household. Did he have continued contact with his family? Was it whatever his mom, older sister, father could teach while he was being nursed in his parents' house? Again, four years old, three years old, six years old, we really don't know. Let that be an encouragement to us. Many of you have taught and taught well your children. And many of you have adult children that are not following God at all today. And I want this to be an encouragement to us to be thankful for what God allowed in the teaching that you were able to do in the past at whatever age that was. For most of you, it was beyond the age of six. I'm guessing it'd probably be the upper limit of what Moses might have been. But I know multiple people in my life who have told me before, I learned of Christ, going to church with my grandma, or I learned of Christ from my parents and I've, I've, I've rebelled against that and I'm coming to Christ now. Or 30 years later, I came to Christ for real. I, but I, I remember hearing truth. I remember being taught this or this or this of the goodness of God, of, the face of, of seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. I, I remember hearing this in a Sunday school class that someone taught me. I remember Neil Tong saying this one time. I remember this person saying this one time. I know multiple people who have come to Christ as adults and heard truth as a kid. So do not give up. Do not give up. I would encourage you also, you know, don't be the the nagging parent or grandparent. Don't pick at every little thing with your adult children. But also... Run from the other opposite of that where you're saying, oh, I I don't want to bother them with Jesus, so I don't talk about it in front of them. If you talk about and live for Christ in your daily life, don't stop when you have relatives over at your house. Don't stop when you're with your coworkers. Don't stop when you're with your adult children. And may God give the increase. May God bring salvation. Not because of your ability and because you taught perfectly when your kid was six, but because of the goodness of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in their life. Trust God's good hand. Faith in the unseen. I want to see it. Faith in the unseen. And that God rewards selflessness. I have another Jeremiah Burroughs quote. If I can find it in here. Hmm. Oh, here it is, yeah. Um, here's another Jeremiah Burroughs quote after that initial one in the introduction that resonated so, so well with us and challenged, right? Here's what Jeremiah Burroughs says about self-denial and contentment. So it's a little bit of a long quote and he's from 400 years ago, so just stick with me on this. It says, When a man is selfish, he cannot but have a great deal of trouble and vexation. For if I regard myself, my ends are so narrow that a hundred things will come and jostle me. You know in the city, he's talking about London, what a great deal of stir there is in the narrow streets. Since Thames Street is so narrow, they jostle and wrangle and fight, bouncing off one another because the place is so narrow. But in the broad streets, they can go quietly. They can just walk along. Similarly, Men who are selfish meet and so jostle with one another. One man is for self and one thing, and another man is for self and another thing, and so they make a great deal of stir. But those whose hearts are enlarged and can deny themselves have room to walk and never jostle with one another as others do. And then listen to this phrase. The lesson of self-denial is the first lesson that Jesus teaches men who are seeking contentment. So struggling with contentment today, you're struggling with contentment today? He says the lesson of self-denial is the first lesson that Jesus Christ teaches men who are seeking contentment. God gives that. Self-focus brings discontent. And I think most of us can recognize that at times in our life. And then just a few kind of pictures here. Let's just look at two more verses, uh, three more verses. Just quickly. Let me give some examples. It says in verse 29 By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, chasing after them after the 10th plague, oh, wait, the firstborn all died. We regret this. We need our slaves. They go back after them. And by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. When the Egyptians attempted to do the same thing, they were drowned. Another example, the walls of Jericho, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Three different times they're saying, here's a miracle, here's a miracle, here's a miracle. Here's something that no human could do, but God intersected with human life of his children saying, I'm gonna step in right here. And that's what God did. Rahab the prostitute, sinful Canaanite woman, how can this be? And the question I want us to ask is, how was someone right with God in the Old Testament? Just, Just think for a couple minutes here. How was someone right with God in the Old Testament? How did someone find approval? Was it in obeying the Ten Commandments? Was it obeying the Mosaic Law that truly no one but Jesus ever did fully obey? Was it by sacrifice? Was it by Passover? How did someone find approval in the Old Testament? Well, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and 2 gives us a pretty clear answer. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, the people of old received the commendation by faith. The actions that they had were a response. They were obedience. They were stepping out because of my faith in this one that God is sending, I am going to obey. And Moses did that at the first Passover in a way that none of us can because he just believed God when God said, I'm sending, I am coming down and I'm going to kill the firstborn if you don't obey by putting the blood here and the blood here and the blood here, this sprinkling of blood. And Moses didn't know what that was going to look like, right? He didn't know what it was going to look like to be for this destroyer of the firstborn to come, but he believed in faith. After that night, the rest of the world could see, or the known world, that part of the world at that time, could say, this is what happens. And we are told by John the Baptist that Jesus is our Passover lamb. It says in John, the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here's the good news. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Everyone is guilty, but the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ enables sinners to be forgiven. And not just to say, yeah, I I believe in Jesus, but what is this faith? It is believing in him, believing what I have not seen, but I am trusting in who he is and what he has done. I loved hearing uh, last Sunday night, Justin Klein shared a little bit about his grandmother, Alice. And I don't know, I, I assume Justin's here somewhere, but maybe he's not. But if you want to see, uh, see a picture of Grandma Alice sometime, Grandma Alice is the coolest 90-year-old that any of you have ever seen. Um, she is a young 90. and Justin said he was reading to her from John chapter 6, and she wanted to know more. They walk through new life, forgiveness, found only in Christ. Grandma Alice appears as trusting in Christ as her Savior. Praise the Lord for that. 90 years old. So for us in here, if you are not trusting in Christ, if you're nine years old, if you are 90 years old, behold, today is the day of salvation. Will you trust him today? And this last thought. If you're a child of God today, Naturally self-centered, as every one of us is, but fighting it by the Spirit's strength, Jesus rewards his followers. Let me close with these two verses. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise your name for sending Jesus. You didn't send Jesus to perfect people. You didn't send Jesus to people who had all their stuff together. You sent the Messiah for broken, sinful people. We see the failures of Moses. We could see the failures of Abraham. We could see failure and failure and failure and failure and look in the mirror and see failure and failure and failure and know that you came for failed people, giving, exchanging your righteousness for our sin, placing your righteousness upon us, not because of works that we have done, but according to your mercy. Lord, may we trust you and follow you and analyze even our own hearts. How am I living my life? What am I doing in life? that I'm saying, this is about me, me, and me. And in some way, am I doing what Peter has done? We are. May we not set our minds on our own things, but set our minds to have the mind of Christ. And in